You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, The Trouble Is. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Our text is John chapter 8, and I'm going to begin by reading the first 11 verses of John chapter 8. Then they each went to their own house, but Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came to the temple, and the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, it commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? And they said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. But Jesus bent down, and he wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up, and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And as we study this morning, Lord, we pray that you would do a formative work in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts. Lord, that you would shape and change our lives, that you would come into our lives with your transforming power, that you would speak to us by your word, and that you would do a deep spiritual work in our lives, Lord, that you would answer some of the questions that we have, maybe some of the things we've been allowing to be barriers for us. And Lord, we just lay those things at your feet right now, and we ask that uh, through this time, we would hear from you, we would truly get it, your message that you want to speak to us, and that you would do a transforming work. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we started a new series uh, called The Trouble Is, and during this series for six weeks, we are addressing some of the toughest questions, some of the big questions that people ask in regard to Christianity, and the things that people say create the biggest hurdles or struggles or barriers for them in embracing and accepting Christianity. In preparation for this series, I did a poll online, kind of a survey on my website, and I asked a lot of people to share it, and they did, and so I got a lot of response. I'll even read you some responses that I got this week from people as far away as Africa. So I I got a ton of response from people all over the world, and both from Christians and from non-Christians, and from people who said, you know, I'm not even sure what I am. I I don't know where I'm at with all of these things. And this series has really, so far already, I've been enjoying it. It's led to so many great conversations, and I hope that you're engaging with it as well and enjoying it. And, uh, you know, we want to really talk about these things honestly. What are the things that people really struggle with and how can we address those things? How can we deal with them honestly? What, what is our response? But also, how, are there some things that we just need to own? And so that's what we're talking about. My hope is that by doing this, we can remove some of those barriers and help people, including you today, to put your faith in Jesus wholeheartedly. One of the other things that I'm excited about this series, is gonna, it's going to go out on the radio, it's going to go out on the podcast, on the internet, you can share it with friends, and so we really encourage you to do that, because we know there are a lot of people who do struggle with questions and doubts, and not just people who say, I'm not a Christian. There are many people who are Christians who say, look, I'm a Christian, I, I want to believe and trust in Jesus, but there are some things that I honestly wonder about and I struggle with, so we're addressing those. Next week, we're going to be looking at the issue of science. Does science disprove the existence of God or or the uh, validity of the Bible? The week after that, we're going to talk about something called the Christ myth. Now, maybe you've seen on YouTube the a video called Zeitgeist, or maybe you've heard of Bill Maher's movie, Religious. You know, there's this common theme of this idea of the Christ myth, which means it's the concept that Christ 
Christianity basically borrowed or stole ideas from other ancient myths and religions and, you know, put Jesus' name on it, and it's really nothing new. It's just a repackaged version of old stuff. We're going to talk about that. Uh, we're also going to talk about the problem of suffering and evil. If there is a good God who can do anything, then either evil shouldn't exist, or if it does, well then does that mean that God's not good? So we're going to talk about that question. And finally, we're going to talk about the issue of exclusivity and hell. For a lot of people, that's a stumbling block. How can Christianity claim to be the only way? And how can they say that if you don't believe what they believe, then you go to hell? That's an issue. So let's talk about that. This week, though, we are going to talk about the topic, which was actually the number one response that we got as to uh, this question of what are the biggest hindrances, what are the biggest hurdles that people experience, stumbling blocks that people experience in embracing Christianity or putting their faith in Jesus. And that is the issue of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. 76% of people who took our poll said that the trouble with Christianity is that Christians are hypocrites. That's the problem, they said. In fact, what was interesting about this poll I took was that amongst people who said that they are not Christians, not Christians, those people, the biggest issues that they marked down as being stumbling blocks, hurdles, barriers for them in accepting Christianity, this is what's interesting. The, the majority of people who are not Christians, they said it wasn't empirical issues. And by empirical issues, I mean things which can be either proven or disproven, things which there's either evidence for or not. It wasn't those things. Rather, it was moral issues that they said created the biggest problems or hurdles in embracing Christianity. Things like hypocrisy. That's a moral issue. Or things like suffering and, and hell. Those kind of things. And so we want to talk about that. Here, here are some of the responses that I got to the actual poll. People could tick boxes or they could actually write in a response. So here's some of the write-in responses that I got. So one person, not a Christian, said this. The culture created by evangelical Christianity is often emotionally and psychologically abusive. Another person, this person is from Africa. They wrote this, white people brought Christianity to Africa, but they have not treated us Africans in a Christian way. Another person says, Christian leaders preach against certain sins, but then they get caught committing those exact same things that they preach against. In other words, that's hypocrisy. Another person said, my problem with Christianity is that Christians harbor resentment and hate, and they are unloving. Well, that's quite the critique on a religion which claims to follow a guy who himself is love. Okay, another person said that negative experiences with Christian leaders is the biggest reason why people reject Christianity. So these responses absolutely line up with the results of a 2007 research project which was undertaken by Barna Research Group. And they asked people why they rejected Christianity. And the majority response they got was hypocrisy and judgmental attitudes on the, on the part of Christian people. In other words, for most people who reject Christianity, the biggest issue that they say is the biggest issue, they say, this is the reason I can't believe in your God. It's because of the behavior of your people, because of the behavior of people who call themselves Christians. And if you add to that the things which have taken place historically under the banner of Christianity, things like the Crusades, the Inquisitions, the witch hunts, the slavery... Let's talk about hate speech even, bombing of abortion clinics even more recently. On some level, people have decided that if Christianity produces these kinds of people, then there must be something fundamentally wrong with Christianity itself. That's the conclusion they've come to. And they say, so, so for us, we must admit this fact. We must see this, that hypocrisy is a major 
issue. It's a major stumbling block for some people when it comes to embracing Christianity. Now, maybe for some of you, you say, yeah, actually, that's me. That's my story. I can totally relate to that because that's my life, man. Uh, maybe you have been hurt by people who claim to be Christians and they treated you badly. Maybe you've had a peek behind the curtain, kind of like Wizard of Oz style, where there's these maybe a person or people who everybody looks up to and they think are so great and so wonderful and so spiritual and so awesome, but you saw behind the curtain and you saw them and you saw that they're not, they weren't not acting spiritually and they were not acting awesome to say the least. Or maybe something happened to you in regard to Christians and you just felt so judged or so betrayed or so rejected and you just felt like you looked at this person said, I can't believe that you claim to follow Jesus, and yet, you know, it's Jesus who claims to be love personified, and yet this is the way you act, and this is the way that you treat people. Now, if that's you, I want to begin today by just saying this. I'm sorry. I, I am genuinely sorry that that has happened to you, and I am sorry that people have hurt you and let you down. As human beings, of course, we're not perfect, but as those of us who call ourselves Christians, here's the thing. We have to be the first to admit it. We have to be the first to admit our shortcomings and sins and own it and apologize and repent. That's our bread and butter. That's what we do. We, we have to do that. As Christians, we need to own the fact that some people and institutions have done things under the banner of Christianity which do not at all reflect the heart of, or the teachings of Jesus. We can't hide from that. We don't try to sweep it under the rug. We don't try to pretend like, oh, well, it's no big deal. No, it is a big deal. Obviously, it's a big deal. You know, sometimes you'll hear Christians say something along these lines, like, hey, don't look at me, look at Jesus. And, and I get that, because in a way, that's absolutely true, that this isn't about, you, you're not following me. You, you should be following Jesus and looking what he says. But there's another sense in which that can be kind of a form of deflection. Hey, don't look at me, look at Jesus. Kind of along the same lines as like, yeah, do what I say, not what I do. So there can be a sense in which that's a kind of a cop-out to say, hey, look at Jesus, don't look at me. Here's what the Bible teaches us. It gives us the example of the Apostle Paul who said kind of something very exact opposite of that. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. That's a very different attitude, isn't it? Follow me as I follow Christ. In other words, he said, I'm going to live my life in such a way that I can be an example for you of what it actually looks like to be a follower of this man, Jesus. I had someone in my life who exemplified that for me. His name was Greg. He was a pastor and he had a formative role in my life at one time. And I'll never forget something he said. I don't even remember the exact context. But I remember he was saying this and here's what he said. He was talking about this, this idea of follow me as I follow Christ. And here's what he said. He said, if you would follow me around for just one day, you would be incredibly disappointed. You would see me do things that I shouldn't have done. You'd see me go places I probably shouldn't have gone. You'd see me say things that I shouldn't have said. And you'd be incredibly disappointed. But then you'd be incredibly impressed. Because you know what you'd see me do after I did all that other stuff? You'd see me get down on my knees and you'd see me repent and confess those sins and admit it. You'd see me go and ask for forgiveness from people and get down on my knees and turn to God and seek forgiveness and restoration and then go out into the world and, and seek by his strength to be different. And I love that attitude. It's a, that's the opposite of hypocrisy. That's somebody saying, look, here's who I really am. And in reality, I am a flawed person, but I'm a person who's absolutely seeking God, seeking forgiveness, admitting my faults, and coming to the Lord. In fact, you know, the word Christian, when it was first used, you read about this in the book of Acts, 
chapter 11, it was originally used as an insult against Christians. It's kind of a form of mocking. They would call them Christians, which in that language meant literally little Christ. So it was, it was an insult. But the Christians were like, hey, we actually think that's kind of a, a, not so much an insult, but that's kind of a, a compliment. And they latched onto it and it kind of spread. So they started calling themselves Christians. But that idea of little Christ, what that insinuates is that to be a Christian is to be somebody who is an imitator of Jesus, but even more than that, a representative of Jesus. But even beyond that, you are somebody who is being transformed into the very image made to be more like him every day, made to be more like this man, Jesus. And so rather than deflecting and saying, hey, don't look at me, don't look at us, look at Jesus, I think we need to own it because that is our calling. We need to own that that is our calling. And when we fail or when other Christians fail, we have to be the first to admit it and to apologize for it. Now, on a personal level, I can just tell you this. I've been a pastor now for 13 years, a senior pastor, head pastor for 13 years. And I've been in church, you know, a little bit longer than that. And I can tell you that I have experienced this stuff firsthand. I've experienced hypocrisy from other Christians. I, I've been hurt deeply by other Christians. I've been let down. I've been betrayed. I've been stabbed in the back. I've been stabbed in the front. I, I've been uh, hurt deeply. But here's the thing. I haven't given up on Jesus and I haven't given up on the church. I absolutely believe in the church because that, that's the other thing that people say is, well, you know, I'm still into Jesus, but I, I'm not, I don't want anything to do with the church because those people hurt me or they're hypocrites or whatever. And I want to tell you, no, that's not the right answer. I still haven't given up on Jesus and I still absolutely believe in the church and I'm absolutely committed to it. And my hope is that as we talk about these things today, I can convince you why you should not allow the bad behavior of some people who call themselves Christians to be a barrier for you in embracing the gospel. I think it is a choice that you make whether you're going to let that be a barrier for you. And I want to give you some reasons why you should absolutely not let that happen and, and you should, in fact, embrace the gospel, embrace Christianity in its full form, including the body of Christ, which is the church. So we're going to look at Jesus. We're going to see how he dealt with this issue and what he had to say about it. Our text, as we read earlier, is the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Let me walk you through these verses one at a time. Verse 1, we find out that Jesus is in Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives is a hill, which is in nowadays, the modern, now it's within the city of Jerusalem. In those days, it was a hill just opposite the downtown or the, you know, the hill of Jerusalem. And so Jesus is in Jerusalem. You know, he spent most of his time up north in Israel. So what's he doing in Jerusalem? Well, let's go back to the previous chapter, chapter 7. Jesus is in Jerusalem for what's called the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was one of the three great Jewish holidays for which every able-bodied Jewish male was required to come up to Jerusalem. So three times a year, they were required. If you were an able-bodied Jewish male, you were required to come up to Jerusalem for one of these three great feasts. And the last one of the year was the Feast of Tabernacles. And so during these festivals, Jerusalem would be full of people. And sometimes men would bring their families with them, but a lot of times they wouldn't. So there would be some families who would come up with, their, with the men, but sometimes they would leave the women and children at home. Like, for example, if the wife was pregnant or if they had little children, you know, you'd have to travel by foot, and sometimes it'd be a multiple days journey. So you might leave your wife and kids at home, and the men might come by themselves. And so I want you to keep that in mind. This is the setting. It's like a big convention season in some cities. Like in Las Vegas, you get these conventions that come through town. There's a bunch of people from out of town. Jerusalem's full of people, particularly full of men, and 
a lot of men who are there without their wives and families. Verse 2 tells us that Jesus came to the temple early in the morning and people started gathering around him to listen to him teach. Verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman to Jesus who had been caught in the very act of adultery. The religious leaders bring this woman before Jesus, caught in the very act. That means they literally pulled her from between the bedsheets and brought her to Jesus. There's a good chance that she's naked. Maybe she's covered in some kind of bedsheet. But they bring her into the temple. And Jesus is teaching this crowd. And they bring this woman. And they bring her and they put her right in the middle of this crowd. And just imagine. Try to put yourself in this woman's place. Just imagine how incredibly embarrassing this would be. You see, we all have done things that we're ashamed of. But imagine if the one thing that you're most ashamed of, that you're most embarrassed of, that you say, man, I hope that nobody ever knows that I did that or ever saw that I did that. What if you got caught in the middle of doing it and then it was made public? It would be incredibly humiliating. It would be terrible. And they bring you to this religious site. That's the last place you want to be. And here are all these religious people and they're all just looking at you and here you are, you know, trying to cover yourself up feeling ashamed and they're not just looking at you but they're glaring at you because they're judging you they want you to know they want you to feel how despicable they think you are and at the same time these guys are are feeling smug feeling a couple inches taller because they're enjoying the fact that they're better than you and now maybe you say okay look look okay I get it the way that they did this was not nice they shouldn't have done it. It wasn't nice the way they did it. But you know what? She would have never been in this situation if she hadn't been doing what she was doing in the first place. If she hadn't been doing that, if she hadn't put herself in that situation, then maybe this wouldn't have never happened to her. But here's the thing. It's not quite that simple. You see, what you need to understand about the, the law of Moses is how it worked in this regard. Now, first of all, the law of Moses did require that a person who was caught in the act of adultery was to be put to death by stoning. They would throw rocks at you until you died. Terrible way to die. But because it was such a severe penalty, because it was a capital punishment, it was required, they put some kind of barriers around it to protect people from abusing this law and taking advantage of it to maybe get back at somebody they didn't like. And so they made this very stringent requirement that said, you have to have two eyewitnesses who saw the very act happening in order for someone to be prosecuted. And so historians tell us that almost no one, if no one ever, was actually ever prosecuted for this, at least not by Jesus' time, because it always happened in secret, and there weren't two eyewitnesses watching it happen. And there had to be two eyewitnesses. In other words, it wasn't enough for people to see two people exiting a room together. It wasn't enough even to see two people lying in a bed together. They actually had to see them in the very act. Which brings up a very important question. Which is, where's the guy? Because, I mean, I know you guys understand this. It takes two to tango. Like, and the law of Moses did not say that it was only the woman who was to be punished for this uh, case of adultery. But both the man and the woman were to receive equal and the same punishment. They were both to be stoned to death. And what that shows us is if they caught these people in the very act... But this is, a, this is a case of hypocrisy, right, because on, the, on the part of these religious leaders, because here they drag this woman into the public square, humiliating her, and yet if they caught her, that means they also caught him, and yet where's he? Apparently they let him go, which is itself against the law. So here they are, questioning Jesus about the law, and they themselves don't care about the law, they totally disregard it. And really, this woman is just a pawn. They're just using her in order to get what they really want. And what they really want is to discredit Jesus. 
Because you see that they're jealous. They're jealous of the fact that Jesus is getting so much attention, that he's so popular. They don't like it. And so what they want to do is they want to kind of cut him down to size. They want to discredit him in the eyes of the people. So what they do is they bring this woman before Jesus and they ask him this question in verse 5. Now, the law of Moses said, Jesus, that this woman should be stoned to death. What do you say? Now, there are two things, two factors here. On the one hand, Jesus is was known as the friend of sinners. It says in the Gospels that the common people loved to be around him because unlike the religious leaders who made them feel judged and they were condescending, Jesus treated people with dignity and love and respect even if he didn't agree with the things that they were doing or the choices that they were making. And they were trying to put Jesus in a place where he has to make a choice between compassion and justice. Okay, Jesus, you're going to have to choose now. Is it going to be compassion or is it going to be justice? If you choose justice, then you will no longer be the friend of sinners. They will not want anything to do with you. But if you choose compassion, then we're going to accuse you of not caring about the Bible, not caring about the Word of God and the Law of Moses. Now, that's the one part, but there's another aspect to this as well. See, at this time, Israel was occupied by the Roman Empire. And a couple of years before this, prior to this event, Rome, having occupied Israel, they took away their sovereignty, which means that Israel could not act according to their own religious law, the Law of Moses. In other words, Israel could not carry out capital punishment according to their religious law. To do so would be against the law of Rome. And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to put Jesus in this situation where he has to choose on the one hand between compassion and justice, and on the other hand, he also has to choose between obeying the Bible and obeying the law of the land that he lives in. And so if Jesus says, don't stone her, then they're going to say, well, look, he obeys Rome and not God. And if he says, yes, stone her to death, well, then they're going to report him to the authorities and he's going to get arrested. So either way, they win. It's a slam dunk. It's easy. They've got him. There's no way that Jesus can wiggle out of this, is there? But what does Jesus do? It says in verse 6, he bent down and he started writing in the dirt with his finger. Now, back to these religious leaders. These religious people were cruel. So they could have easily detained this woman in a closed-off space where no one had to see her nakedness, where she didn't have to be ashamed, but they didn't do that. They intentionally humiliated her and degraded her. Not only are they cruel, they're also hypocrites because they let the man go, who they obviously also saw him doing the same thing. And it just so happened, right, that there were two eyewitnesses. And some people would look at this and say, the coincidence a little bit is a little bit too much here, isn't it? Right? It just so happened that you had two eyewitnesses who saw this happening. You see, a lot of people believe that what we're reading about here was actually a setup. That the Pharisees probably got somebody they knew or maybe they hired somebody to go and to sleep with this woman so that they could then burst into the room and drag her out and bring her before Jesus in order to trap him. And that's the reason why the, the man's not here because he was part of their setup. Because see, here's what would happen, and this is another aspect of hypocrisy. When all these men would come up to Jerusalem for these festivals and these feasts, remember, this was a religious event, and yet during these festivals with all these men, many of them far away from their wives and families back home, there was a market for prostitution. Now that's terrible, right? But think about this. What this means is that these men came up to Jerusalem for this religious purpose, for this religious festival. During the day, they're doing their religious stuff. But in the evening, some of them are going out and they're soliciting prostitutes. And that's what most Bible scholars believe was happening 
here in this case with this woman. And that's exactly the kind of stuff we're talking about today, isn't it? Right? People who act all religious, but when it really comes down to it, they live no differently than anybody else. If anything, some of them live actually worse than people who, who don't call themselves religious. And then you've got the religious leaders turning a blind eye to one person's sin and yet humiliating and publicly shaming another person for their sin. It's not right. So what does Jesus do? He kneels down and he begins writing in the dirt with his finger. What did he write? Well, we don't know exactly, but we do know one thing about it, which does give us some insight into what he probably wrote. So the normal Greek word for to write is the word graphene. Like we, we use the word graphite or graphene, right, for writing. So that's a Greek origin word. And the word is graphene. But here's what's interesting. In this case, it doesn't use the word graphene. It uses a different word, which is katagrapheni which means to write against someone, to write against someone. So whatever Jesus was writing, he was writing it against these people who had brought this woman to him. Now, people have different theories about what he wrote. I'm going to tell you what my theory is. I believe that Jesus was writing two things. I think, one, he was writing passages from the law of Moses itself, which they were in the process of breaking at that moment. He was writing laws which they were breaking or which they had broken. And I think on the other hand, he might have been writing down their sins. Their sins. And the reason I think that is because look at verse 7. It says that when Jesus stood up, he said to them, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And verse 9, it says that one by one, from the oldest to the youngest, they all walked away. See, Jesus had revealed their hypocrisy. That they didn't actually care about the law. They didn't actually care about justice. They only cared about themselves. They wanted to make other, you know, bring other people down so they could stand on top of them to make themselves look that much better, that much taller. And, and the way they treated this woman was absolutely despicable. And they supposedly care so much about this woman's sin and they, they act like they don't have any sins themselves, which they absolutely do. The only person in that place who was qualified to actually throw a stone at this woman was Jesus, and yet he didn't. It says in verse 10, when everyone had left, Jesus asked the woman, has no one condemned you? Where are your accusers? And she said, no one, they all left. And he said, well, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Why didn't Jesus condemn her? Here's the reason, because the very reason why Jesus came, the very reason why Jesus came was to take her judgment, to take our judgment upon himself on the cross so that we could be saved and redeemed. He took her condemnation. You see, on the cross, he would take the stoning which she deserved himself. He would take the one that I deserve. He would take the one that you deserve. He was condemned so that we could be spared. Jesus gave this woman two things. He gave her grace, but he also gave her truth. He told her, go and sin no more. And you know what? We all need both. We need both. That's the message for all of us whom Jesus has saved and redeemed. He calls you to go and sin no more. Leave those things behind you. They're only going to wreck you and ruin you. They're only going to destroy your relationship with God. He took the condemnation for you so that you could be spared. That's the message of the gospel, and we see a picture of that in this story here before us. Now let me tell you a few other things that Jesus said on the topic of hypocrisy. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus said this to his disciples and a crowd that he was talking to. He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? In other words, if you say that Jesus is your Lord, but you don't do what he says, that's hypocrisy. Mark 7, Jesus tells these people he's talking to, he says that to be a hypocrite means to honor God with your lips 
and yet your heart is far from him. So in other words, you can do all the outward religious stuff outwardly, but inwardly your heart is far from him. So Jesus talked about hypocrisy, and apparently it was something he didn't like. In 1 John, John says this, If anyone says, I love God, and yet they hate their brother, that person's a liar. And he says, this is the commandment we have. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. That's the expectation. That's the commandment. You know, the word hypocrite, it comes from a Greek word. It's, uh, so we call it transliteration, which means we, instead of translating a word, we just change the letters into uh, Latin letters and we say it in English, right? So the word hypocrite is just straight across from Greek. The word is hypocrites, which we've changed into hypocrite. And it literally just means actor. It just means an actor. And in those days, actors like Phantom of the Opera, right, they would wear a mask. And so to be a hypocrite, what does it mean? It means to be pretending to be someone or something that you are not actually in reality. Pretending to be someone or something that you're not actually in reality. And so let's ask this question. Why are there hypocritical, judgmental, mean-spirited people who call themselves Christians? Why are there hypocritical, judgmental, mean-spirited people who call themselves Christians? You, maybe you've seen these people. They're online. They're those people who post, like, about how they got wasted and about how, you know, they'll post some, like, lewd jokes or inappropriate content or they'll say something straight-up racist. And then the next thing you know, they're checking in at their church and they're talking about how they're worshiping Jesus and, and all that stuff. And you look at that and you're like, wow, that is super hypocritical. So why is that? Why is it that there are hypocritical, judgmental, mean-spirited people who call themselves Christians. There are two major reasons, two major reasons uh, that are worth noting. And, and maybe these go without saying, but I think that they, they do require saying. So let's talk about them. Number one, there are a lot of people who go to church who aren't actually Christians. So there are a lot of people who go to church who aren't actually Christians. Jesus clearly taught that there are, are not only false teachers in the world, but there are also false disciples. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, Jesus famously said that there are people who think that they are Christians, but in reality they are not. You know, a poll that was taken several years ago showed that the lifestyle activities of people who call themselves Christians uh, were statistically the same as the lifestyle activities of people who do not claim to be Christians in the following categories. So there is no difference between Christians and non-Christians statistically in the following categories. Gambling, visiting pornographic websites, taking something that doesn't belong to them, saying mean things behind someone else's back, consulting psychics, having physical fights or abusing someone, using illegal or non-prescription drugs, saying something that is not true, so lying. Uh, another one is seeking revenge, that was the same, and consuming enough alcohol to be considered legally drunk. So as they said, statistically, according to this study, there was no statistical difference between people who called themselves Christians and people who did not call themselves Christians or who said that they're not Christians. But the study did find one thing, which people who call themselves Christians did less than people who did not call themselves Christians. You know what it was? Recycling. So people who... Uh, called themselves Christians, were 10% less likely to recycle than people who said that they're not Christians. So that's one thing we do less, I guess. So we can pat ourselves on the back, I guess, or not. So why is this? Why is this? Here's the reason. Because many of these people, although they call themselves Christians, they've never actually been converted in their hearts. So they're what we would call false disciples. And you might ask the question, well, then how do you know if you're a real disciple? How do you know if you have truly been converted in your heart? And Jesus actually answers that question in the same section where he talks about false disciples, Matthew chapter 7. He says there that proof is in the pudding, so to say, but he calls it the fruit, right? He said, just as you tell a tree 
by its fruit, so you tell people by the fruit in their lives. In other words, here's the thing for us to consider about ourselves. If your life doesn't match up with what you say you believe, then you seriously need to ask yourself whether or not you are truly a Christian. Because according to Jesus, there are some people who think that they're Christians, but they're not. They're not actually Christians. They haven't actually been converted. They don't actually know Jesus. And I'll tell you what, that's my story. That's what happened to me. I uh, had this friend, and we were talking. She was a Christian, and in passing, just one day, we're sitting in the car together, and in passing, she says to me, you know, something along the lines of, like, how she's a Christian, but I'm not. And I'm like, hey, hey, hold your horses, sister. How can you tell me that I'm not a Christian? Like, you don't even know me. How can you dare, how dare you say that? I'm totally a Christian. And she was like, you are? Because I had no idea based on, you know, just observing your life. And I was like, yeah, totally. I'm a major Christian. Like, I went to Lutheran school. I was confirmed when I was 13 years old. I mean, I did all the stuff. I'm super Christian. I believe in God and stuff. And I'm a Christian. She was like, well, well, answer me this. What does it mean to you to be a Christian? And and I was like, I don't know, believe in God and stuff? And she's like, well, okay. But doesn't, doesn't, like, Satan believe in God and stuff? Like, but he's not a Christian. So apparently it must be something more than that. And she says, well, okay, just is it this simple? Is being a Christian, does that mean that you follow Jesus? And I was like, well, yeah, I guess that's a a fair assessment. And she says, well, look at your life. Are you following Jesus? And I was like, well, yeah, I guess not. And and she showed me that passage from Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus says there are many people who think that they're Christians. They think they're good with God. And yet they're they're in for a rude awakening, sadly. We don't gloat over that by any means at all. It's sad. And she says, you know, there are a lot of people who go through the motions religiously, but they don't actually know Jesus. They don't follow him. And those people, unfortunately, are in for a a rude awakening on the last day. In other words, just going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going into a garage makes you a Volkswagen. So simply believing in the existence of God doesn't make you a Christian, but, but believing the gospel and following Jesus. And so that's the first thing to remember. There are a lot of people who consider themselves Christians, but they're not actually Christians. That was me at one point in my life, and I would assume that I'm not alone. How many of you have heard this statistic? They say that uh, the divorce rate is the same amongst Christians and non-Christians. Well, again, that's misleading, and the reason it's misleading is because in our country, there are a lot of people who call themselves Christians, but they don't live as Christians. So, for example, when you dial down on those statistics and and you change a few factors, the, the numbers change radically. For example, for married couples who attend church three times a month, the divorce rate drops below 10%. For couples who not only attend church, but also pray and read the Bible at home, that number drops to around 2 to 3%. And, and so like Jesus said, there are many people who think that they're Christians, but in reality, they're not. And the New Testament encourages us to examine ourselves and make sure that we are in the faith. So the second thing on this topic is, is this. This is the other point. The church is a place for sinners, not for perfect people. So the existence of people who are maybe, you know, flawed people in church is due to the fact that the church is a place for sinners, not for perfect people. The core message of Christianity, the gospel, is a message of what God has done for us in order to save us. He didn't do it because we deserved it. He did it in spite of the fact that we don't. And so the church is is not going to be a club for people who have it all figured out. The church is going to be a hospital for people who are broken and messed up, but at least they admit it. And the reason they're there is because they're seeking the love and the grace and the transforming power of God in their lives. So remember, hypocrisy means pretending that you're something uh, that you really aren't. But see, a true Christian is a person who is honest, who completely honest, and and admits the fact that they've messed up, that that's not where they should be, that they've fallen short. You see, the message of the gospel, when you really understand it, it does two things in you. On the one hand, it makes you incredibly humble 
because you're admitting the fact that you're flawed and that you need a savior. But on the other hand, it makes you incredibly confident because you're saying, in spite of my sins, this God loves me so much that he would give everything for me. And that's why my advice for you to be, would be this. My advice for you is this. Assess Christianity based on Jesus and what he taught. Here's what Leo Tolstoy said about this. He said, Attack me rather than the path I follow, and which I point out to anyone who asks me where it lies. If I know the way home, and I'm walking along it drunkenly, is it any less the right way because I am staggering from side to side? So let's talk briefly, and, and we'll finish with this, about kind of Christian atrocities that have taken place throughout history. So we've got the Crusades, the Inquisition, witch trials, abortion clinic bombings. One critic of Christianity, a guy named Daniel Dennett, he wrote this. He said, all Christians must bear the responsibility for abortion clinic bombings. Now, if we accept that logic, then we'd also have to say that all Muslims should be held responsible for things that terrorists do or that ISIS does. But nobody, nobody believes that. Nobody says that. The same logic would also require that all atheists would have to bear the responsibility for all the atrocities ever carried out by other atheists, which mean Stalin and Pol Pot and Mao. And I think we would all agree that that, that wouldn't be reasonable or fair. So quickly, some numbers for you. In the past 1,000 years, by Christian regimes, uh, roughly around 200,000 people have been, have been killed. And that's including the Crusades, Inquisition, all that stuff. 200,000 people. And let me say, that is 200,000 people too many. There shouldn't be any. Jesus made it clear that he didn't want his kingdom to advance through coercion or by the sword. So what's the solution? Some people said the solution is we need to get rid of God. And so in the 20th century, we saw the advent of many atheist regimes. The Soviet Union, China, Southeast Asia, even into Africa. And so in, in the 20th century, here's what happened. In, in the course of 100 years, we had 100 million people killed. That's a lot. And here's what Alistair McGrath says on this topic. He says, The 20th century gave rise to one of the greatest, most distressing paradoxes of human history. That the greatest acts of intolerance and violence were practiced by those who believe that religion causes intolerance and violence. But instead of, of comparing numbers, the fairest thing we can do is compare which worldview or which system leads to the kind of actions that we want and prevents the kind of actions that we want to prevent, right? So in this case, Christianity once again succeeds, whereas atheism fails, right? Because a central tenet of secular humanism is the Darwinian concept of evolution based on the survival of the fittest. But Christianity teaches something radically different. Christianity teaches that people are made in the image of God, that they have worth and value no matter their, their weakness or strength, no matter their ability or disability. Christianity teaches us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to care for orphans and widows, and to fight for the weakest and most vulnerable among us. In this way, Christianity actually pushes a back against hate and oppression and exclusion and being slaves to our own passions and encourages us to actually fight these things. Here's the last thing I want to say. When Christians do these things or have done these things, understand the problem isn't with Christianity. These are outliers, not the norm. That brings us to this last thing I want to say, which is this. It, when someone says, I just want us to be aware of this, right? When someone says, I won't believe in God, I won't be a Christian because of the actions of this person or of that group throughout history or whatever, 
That is what we call a trivial objection. Here's a definition of what a trivial objection is. It's when you focus critical attention on a point which is less significant than the main point or the thrust of the argument. In other words, if, if it comes turns out tomorrow that a uh, paper's report, Albert Einstein was a, a big kleptomaniac. He was addicted to stealing. He was just shoplifting all the time. Or maybe even worse, maybe he was a murderer. Maybe he was even a serial killer. Are we going to throw out his mathematics? No, of course not. That would be a trivial objection. And in the same way, every person needs to evaluate Christianity based on its claims, based on the evidence of whether or not it's true. And what this whole series is about is pointing us to that and saying, look at the evidence. It all points to the fact that it is indeed true. And one thing that's really important is this. One day, you and me, all of us, we're going to stand before God. And we're going to have to answer a question. And that question is going to be this. What did you do God's going to ask you, what did you do with the Savior I sent you? What did you do with Jesus, the Savior that I sent you, with the offer of salvation that I gave you through the finished work of Jesus? Did you embrace it? Did you embrace him? Did you put your trust in him for your salvation? Or did you ignore him? Did you reject him? And you might say, oh, but there were these people, and they were so terrible, these Christian people. Again, the question is not, well, what did those people do with Jesus? The question is going to be this, what did you do with him? And I just want to encourage you, don't let other people's shortcomings hold you back from experiencing God's love and grace and his transforming power in your life. Paul the Apostle said that Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And that is not self-deprecation. What that is is the opposite of hypocrisy. It's the opposite of pretending that you're better than other people or pretending that you're something that you're not. It's admitting that you need a Savior and it's rejoicing in the fact that God has become your Savior. So today, whether for the first time or the 500th time, I encourage you to turn to Jesus, embrace him, put your faith in him and what he's done for you, and experience that transforming power in your life. Would you please stand with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your work uh, through Jesus. And, and Lord, we want to be those who admit our shortcomings and failures. We want to be those who repent of our sins. And Lord, so... Right now, even, just as we're, we're doing this, Lord, we confess that we have fallen short. We have fallen short of your standards, of your glory. Lord, we haven't, we've even fallen short of, of the world's standards. And Lord, we repent of that, but we rejoice in the fact of knowing that you have sent Jesus to take our sins and to take the punishment that we deserve. And we rejoice in that. And we embrace that today. We embrace Jesus. We embrace the gospel. And Lord, would you help us to live in such a way that, that we can truly say, follow me as I follow Christ. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. 